free markets, free markets, right? I mean, do you do if you buy just a chunk of land and everyone else is working so hard to make it more valuable, do you deserve the value you get from it? It's kind of like a it's a tricky question. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. We are pleased to welcome Connor Dorotry to the show. He's an economics reporter focused on the West Coast, specifically housing and real estate, for the New York Times, who's previously written for the Wall Street Journal. And his book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America, is on the Forbes list of the 10 best business books in 2020. Really great book. Welcome to the show, Connor. Thank you for having me. Do you care if we joke around about skateboarding in a Costco parking lot, drinking beers? and the You can do whatever trailer? you want. I don't care. I, I try to have a brand that, it, you know, it's funny when um, we had a person from LinkedIn come. Uh, to sort of give us some advice on, you know, how to present ourselves and things like that. And my little LinkedIn picture was like a skateboard trick. And she said, are you sure you want to do that? And I was like, yes, I'm sure I want to do that. So okay. um, <laughs> I, I will say, uh, I mean, this is like, sounds dumb, but it's totally true. I think skateboarding is actually what got me really into housing or or at least the urban planning kind of nexus of it. You know, if you skateboarders are sort of constantly sizing up the city, you know, how neighborhoods are different, how they differ uh, both, you know, in terms of like the actual terrain, as well as just who lives there and what's going on. You know, they're very aware of like security guard hours, you know what I mean? Just like sort of how people move through the city when things are crowded, when they're not, it's just like that there are things you're you're constantly thinking about. So I, I I I have always found that skateboarders in general, and there's a ton of books about skateboarding in the city, and you know some of it gets pretty you know, like philosophical, but um, this is like a known thing, you know. The question that just popped in my mind from what you were saying is, what's your definition of a city? Like, what do you what do you think a city is? That's a good question. Uh, short answer: I don't really know. Uh, there is some technical government definition, which is an incorporated place that yeah. has certain functions. There've been instances where I've called places towns, you know, cause they got 5,000 people or something. Yeah. Let me read the quote. Cause this is, this is why I popped in my mind. The image that came to me when you were talking about skateboarding is not how people I think typically would define a city. So the quote I wrote down was if there's a rhyme to post-war history, it's that whatever system we use and whatever level of government is orchestrating it, when we think of cities as buildings and markets and not collections of people, we are doomed to make the same mistakes. Yes. Well, now you're 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 taking my brain into a, a new place. But here's the important I, I think here's actually the true answer. I think of cities as large agglomerations of interconnected economic kind of uh, an interconnected economic place. And by this rationale, I think of a city pretty much on par with what we call a metro area, right? So in San Francisco, which is obviously the one I write about the most, I think about it as the Bay Area. I think about Los Angeles. Los Angeles is an interesting one because it really is such a sprawled out place that the city the city and the county are more contiguous than um, 
contiguous is probably the wrong word, but the, the city is quite geographically large. And so in some way actually reflects how it operates better than say Midwestern and East coast cities would tend to have like one very concentrated city and suburbs around that. Whereas LA is kind of both. It was funny years ago, this is just kind of dumb, but it's, I remember I was doing a story in Bangor, Maine, and I kept referring to other places there as Bangor and they were resisting this. Like, no, that's Brewer over there. That's different. And it's like right next to, it's like obviously the same thing. And so I'm, I'm more interested in the economic function of it. I think that that's actually very central to how I think about housing, what housing policy like should be. So I'll give an example. When I was doing the chapter in Lafayette, which for your listeners is a suburb, very suburban, I think it probably has 20,000 people or something, a very exclusive suburban part of the East Bay, but has a BART stop in the middle of town, which is a, a, a rail stop. And, and you can get to San Francisco in, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes or something on that train. And I was speaking to a person there who was very unhappy about an attempt to build 300 apartments in town. And he said, don't you think that the people who live near this plot where they want to put the 300 uh, unit apartment complex should have say over what goes there? And I said, well, yeah, to a, to a point, but what about all the people who live in a neighborhood in downtown San Francisco that you commute to every day and their neighborhood has a giant office building in it because you're going there every day? Or what about this BART line that takes you to the airport? You know, uh, and this person was a, a traveling software salesperson. So uh, definitely one of these like million miler type people airport access, very important to him. What about those people? You know, th this train, this stop, this train stop is physically in your town, but it's obviously useless <laughs> unless it goes to all these other places, yes. which by virtue of your travel is dictating, you know, something there. So my point is that Lafayette in that, in that person's conception exists as this completely isolated town of 20 something thousand people. He is thinking of it only as the government barrier. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, no, because what makes Lafayette special is that it's a bucolic, lovely, small town next to all these other big towns where people can either go to the office building or get to an airport and whatnot, right? And, and it's funny, I always tell people this, I'm like, if you wanna live in a truly rural place, you can do this for incredibly low cost. Yeah. You don't want that. You want a place that feels bucolic and rural next to this <laughs> giant economic unit. And so I think of the city as that giant economic unit. So I'm glad you went to the book because the book for me was, kind of mind-blowing but there's like three or four things that that i really hope we have time to talk about today the first is this high level point that where you make that says the people that make housing policy are the people that live there irregardless of the the people that could live there that won't be able to live live there because of how that policy evolves but when i think about housing and the complexities 
I think the point you made that, that really shocks me goes back to the 1970s, and I want to see if I have this right, right? So in the 1970s, when home prices rise rapidly, all of a sudden people start to think of homes as an investment, and it becomes the majority of Americans' wealth. And when that mindset changes, it basically leads to a place where if people are thinking of homes as investments, there's all sorts of policies put in place to try and make the prices of homes almost never go down again, which maybe leads to nimbyism and some of the other really complicated challenges we have today. Do you generally agree? Is there a step change in 1970 that happens here? Yeah, I think there's a step change, not to get too technical, but then again, your audience is cool with that. I think there's a step change in terms of like rate of return. Obviously, not obviously, but housing and or land has always been most of wealth and remains most of wealth for sort of all of time. So, but I think that, so my, I'm only making a minor, everything you said is correct with the caveat that I think housing was always most of Americans wealth. It's just that it was, it was more like a store of value and less like a vehicle, if that makes sense. Like, you know, yeah, I, you, I you had a bunch charts. of money, you put it into a property and you expected to get it back with some inflation, but you weren't like, oh, I might make a million dollars off this. I looked at these charts and this is kind of cherry picked, but you go back to like 1930s to 1960s. And the majority of that time, the value of your so-called land was probably underwater compared to if you bought it in 1930 because you have the Great Depression. But it's still, I guess my only point is people still expected to hold some value. That's all. This is not important. Yes. Everything you said is basically true. I just meant, I do think it's... One thing I've really come to appreciate as I've done all this research after the book, it's almost like I've come to think of the book as a, uh, I mean, I'm proud of it and everything, but I come to think of it as like one little piece of this like larger inquiry I'm on. But land has historically and remains most of wealth. It's actually kind of remarkable if you think about it, even today with all this tech and everything like that. I mean, land is still far more than a majority, particularly if you think, uh, if you land and housing, but land and structures are together still most of all wealth. It's actually kind of a remarkable thing, but but that remains the case. Actually, I read this really good book. We should not go off into this territory, but I'll just say this. I, I recently read this book. I almost felt like I was uh, getting stoned reading it. It's called um, Owning the Earth. And the essential premise of the book is like, where did this idea that anybody owns land come from? Like, it's not an intuitive idea for most of history. It's obviously there's been sort of like traditions. I farm here, you farm there. But this idea, like this sort of, oh, you know, some billionaire owns like half of Montana or whatever, and has probably never even seen half of it or never even seen 90% of it. Where does like that kind of idea that like you own this and we're going to protect that, like, where does that come from? And it's sort of about the development of that idea. And it's fascinating because, you know, a lot of our democratic systems, a lot of our political systems, they all sort of emanate from this idea. Like, this is mine. This is yours. Here's how barriers work. And here's how surveys work. And here's how property lines work. And here's how lawsuits work. You know, they, they all kind of in some way come from this concept and, uh, of 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 owning a plot of land and having certain rights associated with them. So it's, and I think that's why housing policy can be so hard because it's like, whenever I say this to my editors, they go like, Connor, you're going too far. But 
it's almost like civilization or something like that. You know what I mean? You're you're talking about things that are just this large idea of how are we all going to like live together and do this thing, right? And housing is just our kind of view of that. In the 70s, inflation takes off. People start to become very protective. Homes become a great asset vehicle because, and we've seen this again through this la last period of inflation, um, because you obviously buy housing in fixed dollar terms and you get fixed dollar debt. And so it's an incredible, I mean, it, it, you're, you're paying, if you make more money over your lifetime, which most people do, um, it deflates as a cost. And so, but, but the rent value on it goes up. So it's a, it's an, it's a fantastic vehicle. There's a, I mean, the reason that uh, I initially emailed and wanted to talk to you on the show is the Detroit mayor, um, Mike Duggan, I think his name is, mm -hmm. has this kind of creative idea because he's seen his city penalized with investors coming in and buying empty plots of land. I'm curious if you could talk our listeners through that and kind of walk through the pros and cons of maybe how that could change the landscape of his city and how old that concept is. Yes. I'm, I mean, risky territory here, but because uh, I it goes all into this. If you read the story, it goes all into this like guy, Henry George and all this stuff. Let's just start by saying without getting going down that rabbit hole for many years, hundreds of years, about 200 ish or something like that. Economists have talked about how a land value tax, a tax kind of different than a property tax, but a a tax that would be levied on the value of a plot of land is like one of the best taxes. Even Milton Friedman, who hated every tax, said this. And the I guess the idea is this. Land value, A, land is obviously difficult to move. I, I hesitate to say impossible, but but certainly costly. And it's and so, and on top of that, the business you do on land is relatively tied to the area around you. Obviously you could move your company different places, but you know, so if the value of the land is going up and you tax that, it's, you know, very, it's, it's not easily movable. It's not taxing capital or labor, which is the two things economists tend to not like, because if you tax labor, obviously you then have less money. Um, and if you tax capital, this in theory, and basically in practice, discourages investment. I mean, independent of where exact tax rates should be, obviously, both of those things are true. Whereas land, it doesn't do that. Some people will consider land capital, but putting that aside, if you're going to build a factory, taxing the land doesn't necessarily discourage that. And if you're going to go work a job and try to spend your wages on your family and whatever it is you want to buy, it doesn't discourage that either, right? So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect, which is like kind of quasi-socialist in a weird way, but in a but in a way that I think is true, the value of the land is typically almost pretty much exclusively, with the exception of say like natural resources and stuff, but the value of urban land is tied to what everyone else is doing. It's not just your ingenuity. I mean, yeah, sure, maybe you build a mall and it's a lovely mall and it's delightful and people like going there. Um, or maybe you build a housing development that's super creative and interesting. 
and people like it, right? So things that are inherent to the buildings or the design or whatever could be attractive. But in general, the value of land is reflective of all the other things that other people are doing. They're reflective of public investments like a great transit stop. Obviously, if you've ever walked through Central Park in New York, many of the buildings right on Central Park are incredibly expensive to live in because they're next to Central Park. But it's not as if those buildings, I mean, in the, obviously they pay taxes, but it, you know, what I'm saying is that natural amenities, infrastructure investments, being in a cool neighborhood, being near a fun park, like all these things that the public, um, being near cool small businesses, right? Like all these things that our sort of collective effort is, our collective effort and creativity is cr all that value kind of like gets pulled into land. And so, because people want to be near cool stuff. And so what I am saying is that a land value tax to some extent captures that. I mean, I'm, I, nothing's perfect, right? But it's capturing that idea. And, and, I, and I think that's another reason people like it because it feels like sort of true in the sense that land, but again, mostly in cities or suburbs or populated places, it, the value of land comes from this collective effort. And is it fair to say that the Detroit mayor's thought here is just that he wants to punish people that own land and don't actually make the city a better place and give benefits to people who are yeah. actually Sorry, working I went off I, I went off in a very theoretical direction but but I think that still is the baseline Detroit is in some ways the opposite which is people are parking their money in land on the hope that someone else does something you know what I mean like um people will buy land and go oh I hope uh, I, I heard a rumor that someone's bought a stadium here or people are buying land going, oh, maybe someone will want to develop this someday. Not me. Right. And so and, and, and in some ways, that's kind of the moral argument that the mayor makes. Right. Which is that we here in the city and other kinds of businesses, people who are putting money into, you know, auto factories and all these different things, we're all working. We're all working either through investments or you know, civic uh, civic investments. We're all sitting here working, trying to make this place better. And these people are buying land and doing nothing with it on the hope that it becomes more valuable because of what we're doing. And I think Detroit is an interesting, it's kind of funny, all of the land stuff I've thought about is like, is is sort of thought of in terms of thriving cities. Like I just gave you this example of, you know, New, uh, New York, apartments near Central Park. In Detroit, it's almost the mirror image of that. It's the same principle, but it's it's sort of saying you're leeching off of our efforts to make this great. And so it's 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 a fascinating, I think it's actually like a really fascinating area because it captures almost like political philosophical thought in ways that are more difficult than Free markets, free markets, right? I mean, do you do if you buy just a chunk of land and everyone else is working so hard to make it more valuable, do you deserve the value you get from it? It's kind of like a it's a tricky question. Maybe this ties also back to the definition of a city concept as well, and the difference 
the difference between land and let's let's say a share of stock when it comes to the perception of what an investment is because yeah. you i can go onto the new york stock exchange you know and buy a share of some company and then a whole bunch of people do a lot of work that i have nothing to do with and the share of that stock goes up and i'm like cool and if you view something purely as an investment then as a society we've kind of said all right thumbs up you did a great job you're a great investor mm -hmm. if you look at that as land I think what we're saying is there's there's a there's a difference that if you just view that as an investment, but that land also impacts the lives of other people that are around you, it's not a passive thing necessarily when it comes to society. Uh, yeah, and I don't, you know, we could we could go on and on and on. As I told you, I feel stoned when I when I start getting a you know dorm room conversation when I get into these <laughs> uh, you know kinds of chats. But I actually think you know. It's funny, I'm, I was trying to write something for the future, and I feel like economics has, economics, you know, historically began as a branch of philosophy. And I think we've sort of lost our way with all this mathiness in it. It's not to say that's not valuable and it hasn't, you know, given us a much clearer understanding of how certain things works, but it is to say that thinking, how do we want our society to be organized and what's free and what's not free and what's your responsibility to the collective and what's your right as the individual. Like I think land and sort of land value is more closely tied to the, to the like, you know, metal on metal of that question. <laughs> you know, like if you build a giant polluting factory next to your neighbor, People don't think of that as like your individual freedom quite the same way they would feel about your right to build an app in, you know, uh, the internet. It's not to say that the set, that collective questions don't apply to the internet. It's just to say they're not quite as visceral as the space that you really occupy. Except on Twitter. I mean, but except not, right? Like, I, I don't know. Twitter is, uh, well, anyway, I get, I get your joke. <laughs> it, 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 those questions are starting to reach cyberspace, right? But they're inherently trickier because maybe it's, you start to get into questions like speech. Like, but if you had a, if you had a um, booming uh, sound system that was, you know, could be heard for seven miles, your neighbors would have a different feeling about that than if you just said something untrue on Twitter. And I mean, again, you could tune it out. I mean, again, we could yeah, go yeah. on in circles. Also, I think, um, well, anyway, I, I just think land is a fascinating place um, for all these reasons. And, and, in, and one of the fun things about it is, which is one thing I love about this topic, is people get caught in these hypocritical traps all the time. Um, yes. You know, meaning that there are plenty of people who talk about free markets and are the, you know, the, uh, you know, total nimbys and want their local government to be as regulated as humanly possible. Um, and then there are plenty of people who talk about, you know, affordable housing and, and whatever, but then make sure it's out of their neighborhood. And so yep. it's, it's funny, I always joke to people, and I think this is really true. So as I talk about in the book, there are people, NIMBY is not in my backyard, which is the classic, don't build it near me. And then there's this new group of people called Yimbies, yes, in my backyard, that are very pro-development and this sort of thing. And one thing I have found in my life uh, thus far is that Yimbies, yes, in my backyard, are not very identifiable politically. They have what I would call chill. 
and I say that because there's a certain kind of person who they're, you know, there's an empty lot next to them and somebody says, we're going to build X thing there. And they just, their mind just fills up with the worst possible things. Oh, what if, you know, a serial killer lives there? Or what if, you know, a bunch of young people live there and they have a party all night and it wakes my kids up? Or what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And the YIMBY personality, again, which is sometimes Democrat, sometimes Republican, is always like, eh, it'll, be, it'll probably be fine. You know, like they just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, like. That, that'd be a great political party for 2024. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, it'll be okay. <laughs> It'll probably Just be okay. Yumbi and chill. I do love it's it. Like the difference between cooking and baking. Cooking, you're like, yeah, I'm just kind of substitute it. <laughs> you know, baking is like, oh God, it's not going to rise if we don't have exactly this amount and, you know, <laughs> cut, you know, get the knife to get the teaspoon exactly perfect, you know. There's one, I don't know if it's analogy or metaphor. I just can't remember the difference in the definitions. The, that you brought up in the book that was around immigration mm -hmm. and nimbyism. And I hadn't thought about those two things and how they they compared before, but I, I think it was like nailed pretty well there in the book. I've used it since then, by the way, as if it were my own. And I just think it's a it's pretty quite brilliant. Without getting well, thank you for that. But also without getting too uh, too off track or deep, there actually have in the past been. I mean, if you go look at the history of the environmental movement, it has had a dirty, dark underbelly. Uh, with uh, a very, there have at times been very rabid anti-immigrant forces that have been part of that movement. So it's it's not it's it's not a uh, th that's like a real true thing that comes up. Oh, well, but I guess maybe what I meant was there were people that were pro-immigration, like politically mm -hmm. pro-immigration, yeah. and then at the same time NIMBY and didn't realize the. Uh, like the discrepancy, right? That sat in between those two where you're saying in my backyard, no, but I believe that people should be able to come into a country and to to be able to place roots and to have opportunity in the country, like in the border. Yeah. Oh, you're talking, I think you're talking about the NIMBY article. Oh, maybe. I will read it for you just for fun um, because I actually was like very, uh, uh, I'm looking it up. Um, I wrote this about California. Um, I said, um, California is a different place with a different struggle and a lack of housing at its center. That sentence was meant to contrast it with like the booming 1950s growth, right? I said, it's not just that the $800,000 medium home price is too expensive or that the 100,000 people who sleep outside are a daily tragedy or that the outflow of cost of living refugees has helped steer it into population decline. It's that those statistics have raised hard questions about the state's governance and sense of self. How does a place that prides itself on progressive politics have so many policies that exacerbate inequality? How do homeowners whose window signs say they welcome every oppressed group rationalize a system that has caused their own children to flee? So I think that was... Yes. I, I think that was... a and, and, you know, if you go on Twitter, one of these, you know, constant memes is the house that has, in this house, we welcome everybody next... With a, with a yard sign that says that, next to a yard sign that says, like, stop the new building, you know, like, so uh, that's like... That is a, that is a whole subgenre on housing yeah. Twitter. Uh, according to Freddie Mac, there's a deficit of, like, 4 million units um, right now. And 
you had talked mid-gear. I think this was an article you did with Ben Castleman in the New York Times. Um, you talked about the need to build housing through all cycles, right? So when mm -hmm. interest rates go down, builders get scared because they're driven by economic incentives. They stop building. And then it takes a really long time to restart that cycle to start building again. Mm -hmm. To me, there's like this parallel potentially with agriculture, where in this country we say farmers need to grow crops and we're going to subsidize if there's a bad weather year or whatever else. We're going to find a way to make it lucrative for a farmer to continue to feed. Yeah, it sounds excellent. In fact, I was just thinking about that the other day because I've been doing this whole story about the Silicon Valley city thing. And it has nothing to do with any of that. But I just in talking with a bunch of farmers, I have come to realize how you know, how farm subsidies work. Would, would that be a reasonable, I mean, it, I understand how complex and paradoxical this is. We're not solving any of the housing crises on this podcast, but it, is there maybe merit to an approach like that where there's a yeah. government solution? Short, short answer, 100% yes. Long answer, I could even go more and more into this, which is that I do think counter-cyclical building um, can be an important, I mean, Look, obviously, there there are ways in which this could go off the rails. Like you could be like China, where you're building, uh, you know, empty cities. And so I, I, I'm not saying yes, 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 all the time, right? But I'm saying for right now, a counter cyclical, some sort of counter cyclical thing would be good for starters. It'd be a great stimulus program for one. For two, I think it would actually another totally hidden benefit that I think would be great is it would start to encourage more investment in housing productivity you know it would it would it would encourage companies to to experiment more with things like modular building factory built homes you know things that require massive capital investments um that they are typically unwilling to make because they're scared of that downturn i think it would encourage those kinds of efficiencies which i think is not going to you know completely destroy the cost of housing but would make it um make the actual structure less uh, obviously most of the cost is still land but it would it would it would it would help make housing construction much more productive that's another great thing i think it could potentially do um one model for this which i recently did a story on and actually i found incredibly eye-opening it's sort of wonky but again your audience is probably cool with it is in montgomery county maryland they have, um, which is for decades been this kind of national leader in affordable housing, they do a very clever thing, um, which is in theory public housing, but it's not how we think of it. Yeah. They, the, the county effectively becomes a private equity firm. So the way housing works from a capital standpoint is a developer goes and puts in a tiny amount of their own money, if any, gets approval for a project then once they have approval they get an equity partner to put 30 40 percent of the cap of the cost of the building up and then they get a bank loan for the balance you know in a good market it's 30 percent, and they get a 70 percent bank loan and in a bad market maybe it's 50 50 but you know it's in that neighborhood and um you know all the private equity firms you've heard of or whatever do this quite a bit and the typical return that the private equity firm demands is like you know 15 to 18 percent a year you know they want to double their money in three or four years right so uh, obviously it's annualized 
and they're an equity partner, right? So you can't just demand a return, but you know that they they in general that's what they expect to get out of it. And that return for a larger building is tens of millions of dollars. It's not nothing. It's 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 not it's not the whole cost of the building or anything, but it's not nothing either, right? And 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 so that that money that is you know just the return is plays some role in raising rents and it definitely plays a role in what is built you know because you know you typically want to have a higher rent building you want to have a you know like so the return does dictate to some extent what is built and who it targets so what Montgomery County Maryland does is they go to local developers and they say hey we will be your equity partner we will be that private equity firm. You know, they're not building it themselves and not hiring their own construction workers. And, you know, and they say, okay, so, but what we want is we will accept a 5% return, which is, you know, a third, you know, they're price cutting a private equity firm by, you know, you know they're, they're charging one yeah. third, give or take, um, probably less in some cases. And then they say, but in exchange for the tens of millions of dollars you've now saved, on the overall cost of the building, we would like that you would we would like you to have more units that are below the market rent, or to have the units that are going to be below the market rent be much lower. So you know, I would like it to target a person who works in retail rather than a teacher. I'm making this up, but I mean in sure. general, that's what they're doing. Here's why I like that system. It does two things. One. It's the government helping in a way that the government's actually fairly good at, which is just giving people money. You know, they're not great at like building things, but they are great at being like, you know, and, and they have low borrowing costs. There's all these reasons why the government is uniquely equipped to do this. On the other hand, it's still the developers coming up with their projects and they're like this neighborhood, you know, they're kind of like on the in the know is, and then on top of that, the developer is, even though they are forfeiting some return meaning they're forfeiting the chance for like an absolute home run they still get a development fee you know there's all these reasons it's like a it's like sort of akin to a loss leader like it's a way to get yes. money to still come in the door and help you support your staff and all these things but it's also not you know the 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 super high margin business that um so i think that is a really great system and it's one that works in a counter cyclical way as a matter of fact the project that I wrote about in my story was one that had stalled out because the private equity firm was like, no, I, the interest rate shot up. They're like, no. And then the county just stepped in. Well, and I can imagine a financial model. I mean, not to solutionize this, but say that, say that came from the federal government that says you make these investments, you might, the federal government might make a 5% return. And then think of what happens to homelessness and all these other problems that are created by a lack of affordable housing in a way that, saves the government funds to support those other challenges. I mean, it, it seems like a pretty awesome model to me. I have one more question. Speaking, I want... If this ever really worked, people would lose their minds. Like, <laughs> meaning that like right now, the private equity people and all the people I talked to in Montgomery County were like, oh, this is a great idea. It's so innovative, whatever. But if it really threatened them, there's no way they would think it was so innovative anymore. They're kind oh, of that's like, actually, you, you built that's a good building. point. You'd, you'd make the wrong people... The private equity firms would start lobbying in Congress, right? And shut it down pretty quickly. Yeah, but it's also really interesting because if you think about it, I mean, again, not to go off into this place, but 
When a private equity firm is asking themselves, do we or do we not want to invest in this project? They're asking themselves questions like, is this project, is the return on this investment going to be uh, competitive with all the other things we could invest in, you know, like tech stocks and whatever, you know, um, on top of that, they're like, is this return on this investment worthwhile relative to all the other places we could be uh, building or putting money into real estate, you know, whereas the county is thinking about it in terms of like their local problems. And so it's like this, it's almost like, um, Nobody ever said this to me, but I, I, one of the things I thought about it was that they're thinking about capital in a like a less global way. There's this global market for capital that the private equity firm is is calculating, but the local is saying, like, this is what we want to put into it. Yeah, but the local side has the challenges with. I'm just going to use homelessness as an example. So the local government, it makes more sense for them to think about capital in a local way than it does globally. Totally. I mean, homeless, you bring up homelessness. I mean, I have seen studies of this and, you know, I'm, you could argue with their methodology, but they do feel qualitatively true, which is that the cost of homelessness is so much more than the cost of dealing with homelessness. I mean, think of the number of ambulance visits uh, or emergency room visits, which are like the two most expensive possible ways to ambulance in particular to deliver medical care. Um, you know, all these different things that, that, that because the costs are extremely distributed, you know, some of them are in Medicare and some of, you know, that, that it, that it's impossible for anyone to really realize how profoundly expensive it is. Yeah, so your book has a stat, uh, and I want to ask one more question and let I'll let Dougal's jump back in. But that just blows my mind about homelessness because all the stories you hear are drug use or um, cost of living. I mean, I think there's some truth to some of these things. There's definitely truth to it. It says that if you were born between 1955 and 1965, your chance of being homeless is three times greater simply because of when you were born was happening. You have double dip back-to-back recessions in the 70s and 80s. I mean, to me, that's such an eye-opening statistic to say it's way more complex than people try and make it out to be. Some of it is effectively luck. Yes, totally. I've thought about this the other, I've thought about this concept. I, I think about this a lot. Well, for starters, let me just say one thing because people get persnickety about this. I've never met a homeless person who is, you know, perfectly okay. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's never like, oh, I went to Harvard and whatever, you know, like, like that doesn't, you know, there's typically some sort of mental health thing, or they really hit a rough skid in life, or, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not, uh, you know, um, uh, one thing I've also noticed is a lot of homeless people just don't have great bonds. Like, I could screw myself up pretty bad. And I just think there's a lot of people who'd be like, sure, you can live in the backyard, or you can live in the couch, yeah. you what, you know, just like, you know, but I remember one time hanging out with this guy in a homeless encampment and he was like, he was drug addicted and stuff, but I mean, you could definitely have a conversation with him. You know what I mean? And um, he's like, you know, kind of like a tweaky kind of friend, but like, you know, if you've ever had a you know, conversation at someone at a party, who's just kind of weird. Like he's a completely normal person, but he was just, we got into this conversation. We were talking about how his daughter hated him and all this done and sorry for the naughty word, but like, and and, you know, he just didn't have anyone he could go to. So anyway, so my point is, is that there's a lot going on with homelessness. 
But we used to have these things called like SROs, single room occupancy hotels. Like there used to, be, there used to be. I always bring this up that movie Big, when the kid, uh, you know, Tom Hanks. Obviously, everyone remembers the piano scene, but he goes and lives in this like very cheap motel, and it's portrayed as like it's basically portrayed as everyone you now see as homeless lives in this hotel, which is like probably accurate. And you know, we used to have all these places where if you were falling. There was like a net for you, not a public safety net, but just a. I, so I, I think about this. You were talking about birth. There's a book called Birth and Fortune, and it's about how much your birth year can affect your life. And I think about this all the time. I don't even want to talk about this because it's it's uh, going to make me blush. But I sold a house. Um, I just moved to LA about 18 months ago, and I sold my house, and I made like a, an astounding amount of money off that house. Um, I sold at the right time. I bought at the right time, all these things. But I'm constantly thinking about, I was born in 1977, which is a very low birth year. But on top of that, the millennials come right after me. And I have seen in multiple ways in which I have benefited hugely from them, like basically inflating the value of, of things that I've acquired a house in that case. Um, I went to UC San Diego. I was a pretty good student. I was not a complete star student. UC San Diego is now like a star student type campus. Um, you know, there's, and it's just because there's more people. So this is another, I'll say another quote that I, uh, I'd just love to get your elaboration yeah. on. When something in society goes so wrong, that something is often a product of one very large agreement instead of the various small disagreements that consume the political sphere. I think about that all the time and I'm happy you picked that out because I'm always like, I'm always like the things we're disagreeing on are like nothing moves because people are disagreeing and the things we're agreeing on is where everything is happening. Uh, and so I think sometimes that we just sort of all agreed that housing was going to be this massive investment vehicle and that our barometer of it was going to be, you know, more, 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 I mean, the higher it costs, the better off the people who had it were. And I just sometimes, I mean, again, not to go off in a hugely philosophical direction, but like one of the like best critiques of so-called neoliberalism is that it's just like led to a kind of ideological stasis. You know, when Barack Obama and George Bush don't disagree on that much about the nature of kind of a political system, you know, the total disagreement about the role the government should play or whatever, but it's like, you know, it's it's certainly, the, the, the level of disagreement is nothing like you see today where there's like AOC and all these people like that, yeah. or Bill Clinton who effectively governed as a Republican. Again, I'm not critiquing that, I'm more just saying when our economic ideology, the aperture for it is so narrow, you know, what's really happening is that it's, where everyone's agreeing is moving everything forward. Free trade's a great one. I mean, Donald Trump, say what you will about him, and I'm sure people can say plenty, he really changed how people felt about free trade. Or, or I don't know if he changed how people felt about it, but he created a viable sort of alternative path for free trade, which neither party was talking about in any serious way. And so I guess what I'm saying is in a way, at least on that one issue, again, I don't want to get into all this like stealing and all that, you know what I mean? But on that one issue, there has been tremendous change in how people feel 
about free trade. And I think it basically shows how little anyone was disagreeing about it before. And that, and, and it's not um, a, it's not a coincidence that in that time, all these free trade deals were happening and factories were closing and jobs were going there. There was nobody, I mean, no huge, there was not a robust enough disagreement there for in that moment, anyone to have, to have come up with a counter policy, right? If that makes sense. So you see like that's, you know, the really extreme movements happen where there's imperceptible agreement. You wrote about the California effect and maybe the idea to switch to politics quickly mm -hmm. that it might be better and more influential to be a state representative in California than it is to be a congressman or woman. Can you just touch on that briefly? That like was really interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, so California has, there's this thing, just real quick backstory. So there's this thing called the California effect, which is the idea that California's economy is so big that it can bend markets. And it's not because they have some special sovereign power, although in some instances they do. It's because companies don't want to make multiple products for multiple state markets. So they just go to the highest standard. You know, they they create the most they they let California set their environmental stand and then they set it, they sell it to everyone else. And so it's this kind of invisible hand form of regulation. And California has unique power to do that because a company actually will make for the California market. Whereas North Dakota or someone could try that and they'd be like, I'm just not selling a car there. Like, you know what I mean? Like California yeah. is big enough that they can pull that off. So I, obviously, Congress can do all sorts of things. And in a functioning Congress, a you know influential congressperson who is writing and passing bills would be tremendously more influential than a California congressperson. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But we are in a moment right now where California ha is a it moves bills constantly. I mean, you know, the supermajority of Democrats, they're constantly doing new things. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is California is in general higher than the federal, right? So Texas, meaning California is operating on a higher standard or more restrictive, I guess, is a is a neutral way of saying that, right? Texas and somebody like that isn't going to like try that because they don't want to be high. They don't want a more environmentally restrictive. They don't want, and I'm not trying to speak for Texans. I'm just saying yeah. California has both this, it has this like kind of triple threat of they move bills, they're a big enough market that companies won't ignore it, and they actually want to be more restrictive than Congress. And this gives them tremendous power in the market. I'll just stop, but I'll just say this has been most effective in auto regulation. It is like a well-known fact going back to the 70s. I think it was 70s or 60s. Anyway, um, you know that California has passed. California essentially regulates the nation's auto market. Exactly. Uh, thanks. That's a really good. They do have, for what it's worth, just a small side thing. They do have some unique power to do that, um, meaning that the federal government has specifically given them the power to do that. It could, in theory, be taken away. Um, and people have tried. It's never really worked. But there are other places where they do the same thing without that specific power. Um, the California effect one was uh, was one that I was proud of because it was like a harder nut to crack than I thought, you know, because one thing I'm constantly doing in my work is trying to really pull the story 
into the thesis. In that in that story, it was very easy to find examples that just say California is big, but that wasn't enough because a lot of things are big. It's a, it's about a combination of big and essentially legislating the rest of the nation, right? And so it was an interesting. It was a it was a very hard story to kind of make coherent. And so hearing that you liked it makes me feel good because it was like much more painful than it read uh, on the page. So So because this is an investing podcast, typically, we really appreciate you coming on the show because so much of housing and real estate ties directly to investing and economics. We typically ask our investors two questions to close the show. One is, what's your dream retirement? And how does that differ from today? The hope is we're uh, striving and working towards uh, making our dream retirement something that's close to our lifestyle today. But we'll let you fill in the details there. You know what? I've been very lucky. Uh, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Years ago, my wife and I uh, went to a wedding. And then after the wedding, we were supposed to go to a lake with a bunch of people. And it was portrayed to me as various women and their husbands were going to go on this trip. It turned out literally no other guys besides me went. And so I find myself on a pontoon boat in the middle of a lake in Minnesota with like eight girls talk, you know, drinking champagne. And they're like, tell me your perfect day. And I'm just sitting there like, what is this conversation? Like, you know, but it, they, out of politeness, have to like incorporate me into it. And it was funny because every person there, and I'm not, I mean, call this a stereotype, whatever, but this is the real truth of what happened. Describe what was a wedding, even though it wasn't declared a wedding. It's like, I'm going to have a party and I'll be in a dress and my friends will be. And you're like, okay, that's a wedding. Anyway, and my wife asked me what my perfect day was. And I was like, uh, you know, just like kind of go to work, like maybe go skate with my friends and like have a beer on Saturday. Like, you know, she was like, that's like your life, you know? Um, And so I guess to some extent, I, I, you know, I suppose I wished... I had like maybe mildly more creative freedom or something like that, right? But in general, writing articles, inquiring about things, traveling around the world and talking to people, that's in general what I would want to be doing. And I have no, you know, I live in LA now, which I have started to to, to like, and, you know, my kids are great. And so when you put it that way, in general, I think it's like, I suppose I wished I had more free time and more world travel or something like that. But in general, it's uh, I, I, I've been very lucky and I'm, you know, happy about it. Well, we love it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, Connor, you're very talented. Oh, um, thank writer. you. So we really enjoy the stuff you write. Uh, the book's great. Everything else is great. We appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate yeah, it too. Awesome.